Just thought I, we'd give you a quick note to let you know that we're going to be getting together uh, with a little bit of a Grace on Tap road trip at Brewery Becker in Brighton, Michigan on March the 30th. That's Thursday, March the 30th at 7.30. For further information, uh, check us out at Facebook, uh, Grace on Tap Podcast, uh, or you can see our, our website, graceontap-podcast.com. Or shoot us a note, uh, graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Mike Yagley. And I am Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. The beer we have on tap with us as we are talking about the Lutheran Reformation is Bell's Oatsmobile Ale. It is a Session Pale Ale by Bell's Brewery from Comstock, Michigan. And here's the story for this beer. It's aromatic, approachable, unique, intriguing, happy-go-lucky, full-bodied. And we're not just talking about the horse. I hope our our conversation is also aromatic, approachable, unique, intriguing, happy-go-lucky. We'll find out about that. But the point of our conversation today in this podcast is to look ahead to the meeting of Martin Luther and Cardinal Cajetan in 1518 in the city of Augsburg. Now, this particular episode, I've been calling it the Game of Thrones episode because there's a lot of political intrigue that's going on in this lead-up to the discussions in Augsburg in 1518. You have the Pope, who is who is trying to get Luther arrested, and we'll go through that a little bit. You have Cajetan, who's who's the Pope's legate, I think. Legate is what it's called. That's his representative there in Augsburg. And, of course, you have Luther and Frederick the Wise. We'll go through all of these characters, all these people, and how they play together and how they don't, and how Frederick the Wise helps Luther skate through this where he doesn't get himself arrested. But let's... So a year ago, 1517, Martin Luther wrote the 95 Theses. These theses which challenge the role of indulgences and the character of the sacrament of penance, they've reached the Pope. Now they reached the Pope really much earlier. I mean, it wasn't probably before the end of November of 1517 they were in the pope's hands and so the pope that what he did was a couple of things the first thing he did was told luther to shut up and he now he doesn't just show up in some like facetime conversations with martin luther he goes through the the system he asks luther's superior uh Stolpitz, to say quiet down so that's basically luther's boss luther's boss tells him in the augustinian order tells him okay now, Stalpitz, what didn't work too well for the Pope, Stalpitz actually, it's difficult to say whether he totally agreed with Luther, but he certainly was sympathetic to Luther. He did place Luther into positions where he could talk and share his ideas. And, and so then Luther instructed to keep quiet, uh, to cause, to stop from causing more trouble, agrees to be quiet if, if his opponents are going to be quiet. And of course they weren't. No. So in the summer of 1518, Cardinal Cajetan is traveling to Augsburg to attend the 1518 Diet of Augsburg. Now, what's a diet? Well, this is 
a weird word. Especially, I always find it funny because there's another diet that's important in the history of the Lutheran Church at the Diet of Worms. And so you start to think, what kind of recipe advice are Lutherans giving the world? We've got a diet of worms? What is this? A diet is a gathering of the leaders, the political leaders of the Holy Roman Empire. And it is this opportunity for the electors, the dukes, the cities, all to give their voice to the emperor and for the emperor to speak to his nobles and tell them what he wants them to be doing in their lands. It's almost like a congress or like a meeting of parliament. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's basically what you've got is this 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 meeting of the leadership of the Holy Roman Empire, which is effectively really the Holy Roman Empire in this era is pretty much just Germany and northern Italy. That's that's about the scope of the Holy Roman Empire. So Rome isn't even in the Holy Roman Empire. No, they're not. Now, most Lutherans will know about the Diet of Augsburg, but not this one in 1518. They may know more about the one that takes place in 1530, when on June 25th in 1530, there is the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. So that's that's something, when you hear about Augsburg, Lutherans are going to think of that. They're going to think of the Augsburg Confession. This is about 12 years previous to that, and it's the it's really just a, a meeting of the leadership of the Holy Roman Empire. The 1518 Diet of Augsburg wasn't set up to be a great religious controversy. It wasn't to be a time when there was going to be great resolution of things. Maybe Luther was just a side note to this meeting. Actually, I think he was, uh, he was an appendix. He wasn't even, you know, that, this is something, the meeting seems to have ended, everybody left, and then Luther shows up and has his discussions. So, but what happens actually during the, the Diet of Augsburg, the political machinations that happen in that meeting really save Luther's neck. Because it demonstrates that there is a power play going on between the Holy Roman Empire, Rome, Germany, the emperor. There is a whole triangle of conflict where you can't just say everyone's against Luther because there's some people who are for Luther. And they're for Luther for theological reasons, but also for political reasons. So let's talk a little bit about what takes place with uh, the Diet of Augsburg. Cajetan's there to bring the insignia of the cardinalate to Albert of Mainz. So who is Cajetan? So Cajetan, he is a smart guy. He's also known as Thomas de Ville. Uh, he's an Italian philosopher who was promoted to be the Cardinal Presbyter of St. Sisto in Rome in 1517. And he's basically a, a traveling representative of, of the Pope. He has the authority so that he can go into a situation and speak for the Pope. So this is a very, not only is a smart guy, but he's a powerful guy. Yeah. And, and so he's the pastor of a church in Rome, although he probably was very rarely ever at that church. It was just he needed some church that he was identified with. So that's St. Sisto. And so he, so he comes there and he's got he's got a couple of things that he's got to do for the Pope. Right. He's he's going to be saying, OK, here's 
for here's the hat for Albrecht of Mainz. Here's the hat and dagger for the Pope. Uh, giving no, for, to, the, for the from the Pope from the Pope to Emperor Maximilian, and he's also there to kind of figure out the terms of alliance between the Pope and the Emperor, and a growing fight that's developing between the Turks and Western Europe. So, who are the Turks? The Turks is a phrase that's used in the 16th century to describe, yes, the people from Turkey, but even more than that, it's seen as the Muslims. Sometimes the word Turks is to describe anybody that is approaching from the East that are part of the Islam faith. Okay. And so so the Turks is both uh, the moving of the Turkish army up the Danube River towards Vienna, but it's also the movement of a contrasting religion. So so we've got the Turks coming up into really threatening the Holy Roman Empire up the Danube. And so the Pope wants to have really a counterattack, which is a crusade. He's calling for a crusade, but now in this time period in the 16th century, crusades don't nearly have the same religious connotation that you may think of as the early Middle Age crusades that brought people to Jerusalem. I think most people at this point are going to recognize the self-interest of the Pope in calling for a crusade is to protect his own people and his own lands, and that the Holy Roman Emperor is going to want to participate in this crusade, not because of some great uh, advancement of religion, but to protect the land. Okay, so so the table's set. We've got the Turks coming up. The Danube River, they're they're threatening the Holy Roman Empire. You've got Cajetan coming over from Rome to talk in, in Augsburg to negotiate about this. And then you've got the the leadership of the Holy Roman Empire, which is primarily the Germans in northern northern Italy. They're all gathering there to also work with Cajetan to figure out what the, what's going to happen. So you have this big group that's meeting. And they're having their discussions. So what do we have from Luther leading up to the Diet of Augsburg? He's written the 95 Theses. Okay. And then, you know, really, that's that's about all he's done. He's done his sermon uh, on, on... On indulgence and grace. Right. So that was for the common people. But really, what the Pope... Looking at it from the Pope's perspective... Let's take a moment and look at this from the Pope's perspective. What does the Pope have from Luther? He has the 95 Theses, and that's it. There, Heidelberg disputations taken place, but that was seen as almost a different issue, not directly related to the 95 Theses. And the, most likely, the Pope didn't know anything about the Heidelberg disputation. There's no, at least I wasn't able to find any record where the Pope paid any attention to the Heidelberg disputation. So really, what the, all the Pope has got in his hands from Luther is the 95 Theses. Now... In February of 1518, Luther has prepared a document called the Explanation of the 95 Theses. And in that document, he's really getting ready to attack not just indulgences and the sacrament of penance, but to lay the groundwork that maybe the whole office of the Pope is in question. But part of, because the Pope told Stalpitz, shut this guy up, Luther has not published it. He's got it ready, It's but it's in his drawer. It's just sitting there ready to go. Nobody even knows that exists. And so he goes to Heidelberg with it already written. He He's talking about whether he's going to publish it in Heidelberg. There's concerns. If you've published this, what does it do to all the negotiations that are taking place? When he returns from Heidelberg, what does he do? Well, uh, that's actually, we'll get, we'll get into that after Heidelberg, but at, looking at it from the Pope's perspective, again, I want to go back to from the Pope's perspective, 
He's got the 95 Theses from Luther. He does not have the, the, the explanation of the 95 Theses, which is sitting in a, in a drawer someplace. He, he doesn't have the, he might have the Sermon on Indulgence and Grace. He might know that's out there, but that was written in German. And that, that could have easily gotten by him because. And its intended audience of that sermon wasn't the Pope. It was the German people. Right. And Luther, Luther had a letter that he wrote to the Pope, but that hasn't been sent to the Pope yet. That's actually part of Luther puts that in with the explanation of the 95 Theses. He puts that, that letter in there and sends the whole package off to the Pope. So really, the Pope doesn't have anything. But that's not, that doesn't stop the Pope from doing something about it. Now, so the Pope hasn't heard much from Luther, but he has heard from the Roman Curia. Now, who's the Roman Curia? So the Roman Curia, that's just the bureaucracy that is surrounding the office of the Pope. And the Curia's main work is to protect the office of the Pope. Not necessarily to advance the gospel or to share Jesus, but to just make sure there's a big fence around anybody that wants to hurt the work of the Pope. So these are these are very, very powerful people in the papal world. They may have their own financial interest. There's going to be financiers. There's going to be lawyers. There's going to be theologians. But generally, their task isn't to discuss theology. Their task isn't anything more than to protect themselves. So they, when the, when the Pope received the 95 Theses, what he did was he gave it to a couple of guys who were... Uh, either in the Roman Curia or affiliated with the Roman Curia. And I wasn't quite able to figure out what their role was in the Roman Curia. But So Jer- Jerome Ganucci is one. He's the Auditor General. He's going to be the lawyer that's on this uh, task force. So to think about what the Pope's done, he's called for a task force to come together, study the 95 Theses, figure out what is the implication of these 95 Theses, or is they bad as it sounds? Uh, so it, we got a lawyer? Got, Who else do we got? Uh, we got this guy, Sylvester Prius. Yeah, so he's a theologian, and he's really going to become later, and in this time period, he's part of the Inquisition. He's a part of those who are examining... uh, The Spanish Inquisition? Well, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) (laughs) A little reference to some old Saturday Night Live. That's worth a drink. (laughs) But, yeah, so Sylvester Prius, he's a theologian, but he's not just some academic, often some uh, dusty old office. He is looking at what everybody writes with this lens of suspicion. Okay. So so we've got Sylvester Prius, who's a, a he's, he's a high-powered theologian who's very suspicious mm-hmm. of anything that comes out that's not from the Vatican. And he studies the 95 Theses, and he issues a report called The Dialogue. So what they did, what both uh, Ganucci and Prius... Prius? Prius. Prius. Prius is a good card. <laughs> yeah. But Prius uh, is the theologian. Right, right. So, Ganucci and Prius, what they do is they call Luther to Rome. And this is a critical turning point in Luther's life. He may not know it yet. He mm-hmm. hasn't heard yet. But they are going to call him to Rome, which is, he, he when he does hear this, he immediately recognizes that things have taken a turn for the worse for him. But let's, that's, I'm getting ahead of the story. So Luther receives the findings of Ganucci and Prius, Prius, and the Pope tries to arrest Luther. So now the letter, also the Pope goes and 
calls to Cajetan. Now, Cajetan... He's already on his way to Augsburg he's, when he, some of these findings are taking place. Exactly. So you've got Cajetan, the, the, the legate, the, the, the papal representative out in the field, speaks for the Pope. This, and the, he left Rome with a certain set of instructions, and as he's on his way, he gets some more details. And he's told, arrest Luther. And the act of arresting Luther is going to include uh, tell Luther to recant. So, so Luther has a way out. Full recant. If you, yeah. I, I'm going to arrest you, but if you recant, you'll find yourself back in the Pope's good graces. And w- what do you think that word recant means, Mike? I mean, in terms of Luther's identity as a person. From Luther's perspective. Okay, let's look at it again. From the Pope's perspective, it's... This wipe our hands. It's like nothing ever happened. You, you are disavowing everything that you have said. From Luther's perspective, it's something very, very different. And from Luther's perspective, he would be disavowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so for Luther, recant isn't just to quiet things down. It is, in fact, to put a mute button on the promise that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. I know that Luther doesn't want to bring schism to the church. But a church that's built on something other than the gospel is starting to not be a church for Luther. And so he will hold on to his position, even if it causes schism in the church. Because, well, let's look at what church he would be bringing schism to, a false church. He he knows he can hold on to his position because that's holding on to Jesus. And any church that would be divided because of his position is no church at all. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got, so this letter goes out to Cajetan. Now a second letter goes out, right? There's actually three letters that go, or no, two letters that go They're out. They're busy. So we got a letter to Cajetan. It says, tell Luther to recant. If Luther uh, recants, he will be forgiven. Wipe our hands. The issue's done. Let's all go back to the way things were before. If Luther refuses to can't, recant, Cajetan is told to bring him back to Rome. Now, what's about this other letter? There was another letter that went out to Frederick the Wise, who's Luther's elector, his protector, his 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 governor. Yeah, so Frederick the Wise is the the noble in charge of electoral Saxony, which is the region that Wittenberg is in. Now, the Pope didn't didn't mince words when he spoke to to when he sent this letter to our friend Frederick the Wise. He said arrest this son of perdition and what perdition is is hell so you know the son of hell this 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 hound of hell get get him get him out of there arrest him and then also in pope they're working with gabriella della volta who's the general of the augustinian eremites um and they're working with provincial saxony to arrest luther and they're kind of uh, sidestepping Stolpitz now. They had tried to work with Stolpitz and say, Stolpitz, silence Luther. Stolpitz is Luther's superior. And his immediate superior. His it's most a, immediate that's supervisor. His boss. That's, his, that's, his, that's his immediate boss, right? And that didn't seem to do anything. So now they're going to Stolpitz's boss and say, do something. Yeah, actually, the, the, and I boss think they might have boss, 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 boss. Yeah, boss. This, is, this is somebody who's way up the chain of command, who actually is residing there in the Vatican. The Pope calls him in and says, shut this guy up. So this is all taking place in the summer of 1518, accelerating towards Luther finding out in August 7th that he's been called to Rome. Now, Luther can't see into the future, but he's pretty certain if he goes to Rome, he's not going anywhere else. He's going to... He's going to... He's done. Yeah. His life will end. So what we... Either his life will end or I think Wycliffe in England was basically... You had John Huss 
about a hundred years before Luther, it burned at the stake. Luther is certainly top of mind there. Yeah, it might be burned at the stake. And actually in Luther's writings in this time, he references, I'm willing to go to the stake for this. I'm willing to go to the stake for this. A couple of times he references that. So that's definitely top of mind. But then there's also, I think Thomas Wycliffe, who was in England, was went under house arrest. So there, neither one of these is good. He doesn't want to have his life silenced, nor does he want the promise of the forgiveness of sins that he's now starting to share with a, a wonderful vigor with the people to be silenced either. So we've got, now all of this is happening. Everything that we've discussed, those those two letters and and the the call to the, the head of the Augustinians to, to arrest Luther, those three calls for the arrest of Luther. There are three calls. There's the one through the Frederick the Wise. There's the one... Through Cajetan. Through Cajetan, and then there's the one through uh, Gabriella della Volta. So there's there's three calls from the Pope for Luther's arrest. But Luther knows nothing of any of this. And then in August 7th, he starts to hear that he's going to be called to Rome. On August 7th, he gets a letter. He gets that letter from Prireus, who says, time to come to Rome. What a low point that would be for Luther. Because... He has this notion that if I trust in the promise of Jesus Christ and I share this message with others, the kingdom of God is at hand. But now, is the work of Rome powerful enough to silence this? Will he just become another person that is taken to the stake? Is he another person that will be locked into a room and made to be quiet? It's actually, that's what happened to everybody before Luther. Luther was not the first person with this with a similar message. So is there any di- any difference in what's going to happen to Luther? If it was only in the hands of Luther, probably not much different. If it was only a theological argument between Luther and Rome, the story would probably end like John Huss at the Council of Constance. It would end like Wycliffe. It would end with silence. Now, but there's a third person. It's not just the Pope and Luther. There's Frederick the Wise steps in to the middle of all this. And Frederick the Wise, who's the noble for Luther has incredible power in the Holy Roman Empire right this time. He is an elector. He is one of seven people who have the responsibility of electing the Holy Roman Emperor. Talk about voter suppression, eh? This yeah. is You only get seven people who vote, uh, and that's it. So this guy is incredibly powerful. And now, there is an emperor, Maximilian, but he's getting older and so people are starting to make the maneuverings to say what happens after maximilian and so there is a reluctance by any power in europe to make any elector mad you don't want to make an elector mad because that means you've lost his vote so maximilian wants now maximilian also knows he's getting ready to die and he's starting to maneuver to get his grandson charles of spain to be the next emperor. So he wants that in the bag. He wants that. He wants that locked up before he dies. He wants his legacy. Sort of like, you know, when a president steps on, they worry about their legacy. Well, Maximilian's worried about his legacy. And he has a specific person that's going to carry on his work. And he's looking at Charles of Spain. To do now, his the grandson. Pope doesn't want Charles to become the next emperor because Charles has the hereditary rights to the lands in Spain, which would increase the size of the Holy Roman Empire tremendously. And now the Pope, instead of having just a nice neighbor to the north, is a very 
powerful neighbor to the north. Charles the Charles actually Charles V of Spain ends up and if he becomes the next Holy Roman Emperor, he will have Germany, he will have Spain, and don't forget because of the work of Christopher Columbus, he has all of South America. So 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 you have this guy who is one of the most powerful men that the world has ever seen. And the Pope doesn't want to have one guy with that amount of power all sitting, especially at his next door, next door, you know, because the Pope has this sitting there in, in, in middle of Italy. So Frederick the Wise is important in this story because of his role as an elector in the Holy Roman Empire. He's also got a great story for us as a part of the Reformation because he started the University of Wittenberg. He is an early supporter of Luther. Now, his support for Luther is because he wants to protect his university. He wants to have people come to Wittenberg, go to that university. He wants people to become familiar with Wittenberg as this premier city of Europe because Frederick the Wise has this amazingly huge collection of relics. That's actually one of the reasons Frederick the Wise opposes indulgences. Luther opposed indulgences because of the theology around them. Frederick the Wise, he opposes indulgences because if people can go to Ducal Saxony, which is outside of electoral Saxony, it's a different Frederick the Wise, Frederick the Elector of Saxony has electoral Saxony. Next door is Ducal Saxony. And in Ducal Saxony, people could go and buy indulgences. If people keep going to Ducal Saxony to buy their indulgences, that means they don't need to come to Wittenberg to visit his relics. So what happens is, so you have Frederick the Wise who's protecting himself. He wants to, he wants to protect Luther. He wants to protect his university. He wants to protect his, his, his relics, the, the, the income from his relics, at least at this point. Frederick, Frederick the Wise, the Wise eventually becomes very, very reforms and becomes a, uh, gets on board with Luther theologically, but that's down the road. At this point, he's just looking out for himself, at least we think so. Yep. So Frederick hears that Luther has been called to Rome to answer for the 95 Theses. Mike, what does Frederick do? Well, what Frederick does is he's sitting there in Augsburg and he's watching the with the the workings of the diet of augsburg now cajetan goes into the diet of augsburg and tells everybody that they want to they want to have a crusade against the turks and everybody in the diet all the nobles in the diet really aren't interested in that and they're it's they're 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 described as being sullen a sullen resistance to this whole so they're not really feeling they're they're not just you know like i i'm not interested no they're like jerk i'm you're putting my kids at risk for this war that's not really going to benefit us at all so cajetan's position in supporting the pope and supporting rome gets weakened when he's telling everybody, we need to have a crusade. We need to fight against these Turks because it emboldens the electors to see a national unity of Germans. So the, that's that's the first thing. That, and now Frederick sees this. Frederick and Maximilian both see this. Interesting thing. What, what Maximilian does is he writes a letter to the Pope and says, you really need to be careful with Luther because... The, the nobility of the Holy Roman Empire is turning against you anyway. Even outside of this whole Luther thing, 
You need to be really careful with that. So that's what Maximilian does. What Frederick does is Frederick looks at this going on and he says, aha, the Pope is weak. The Pope is in a weak position. He needs allies. He needs allies. I could be that ally. So the, so the next step that happens is the question of, okay, what about having Charles be the replacement emperor? So the, the question of the, of the crusade is set aside. And now the next question comes up. And the next question is, who's going to be the next emperor after Maximilian dies? And what Frederick the Wise does is he says, everybody's on board with, with, with Charles, except for, I think, the, the Archbishop of Trias. And so what Frederick the Wise does is he says, you know what, Mr. Pope, I'm, I'm on your side. I could be your ally. Suddenly, the Pope gets real, the, the Cajetan and the Pope's staff gets really friendly. So what's the cost of this alliance? Is that Frederick the Wise proposes to the Pope's primary representative there, Cardinal Cajetan, that Luther be given a fair and impartial hearing, not in Rome, but before a German court. Now that doesn't fly with Cajetan. He knows that that would that would take the power away from the Pope to make a decision on a theological question. To have a theological question decided by a German court instead of by Rome, Cajetan's not going to give up that much no. for this alliance. So he offers a counterproposal. And the counterproposal is Cajetan will personally give Luther a fair and fatherly hearing right there in Augsburg. So Cajetan's not going to take Luther away from Germany and take him to Rome in Augsburg, they'll talk to him. Okay. So what we've got now is everything is set. We have, we have Cajetan is waiting for Luther to show up uh, as a payment for the alliance, the, the support of Frederick the Wise in not having Charles eventually become the, the next Holy Roman Emperor. So this whole question of Charles is, is this kind of pawn that's moved around in this alliance. Frederick the Wise, and he's called wise because, well, just, you can see what he's doing right here. He's an incredibly wise guy. He's very, he's, he's, he's. And he always says it in such a way that he's doing you a favor. Yeah, he's very astute. Not, he's a, this is a guy who grew up. He was born into the, the courts. He was born with this position of elector. And so he's from, for his whole life, he's been very, very powerful. And so he is very aware of all the inner workings of everything. And he, he knows how to play this game. And he's had to establish his political power because electoral Saxony does not have nearly the amount of resources that ducal Saxony has in terms of production and industry. And so if he wants to make sure that electoral Saxony stays important, it has to be because they have a political role in Germany. Because Ducal Saxony's got the money through their industry. And so Frederick the Wise uses the currency of politics to stay important because he can't use the currency of, of industry in that role. So Frederick the Wise is great at keeping Germany and especially his own university important. So, so through the work of Frederick... Luther was able to avoid being sent to Rome, and which now, would have been horrible. That would have that would have, would have ended, ended the whole conversation. Last podcast, Luther goes to Rome, 
<laughs> that's it. Prost. Prost. <laughs> that's so. But that's not what happens. But the, you know, because of Frederick the Wise, Luther stays in Germany. So let's. How do you like the beer? Mm. You know, I, this is the second time I've had it, and the first time I, I wasn't as impressed. But it sort of grows on you. I, I enjoyed it this time. It, I think these these oatmeal beers have this need for a kind of a resting on the tongue. They they have a flavor to them. It's certainly not a summer. It, it's drink that where you're just drinking and drinking during the day at the beach. Yeah, it's a little sip. It's a it's a sipping beer. Yeah. Uh, at least for me, you know, for me as well. Which is true for most beers. I'm not gonna. Take yeah, a... <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a heavy drinker. Although we talk a lot about beer, neither of us are having more than one at a time. Yeah. All yeah. right. So, one more very interesting point that's going to come into play is again this question of the Turks. It feels like at every diet that the emperor calls, he is always trying to beg, nurse, cajole the Germans to help him fight the Turks, and it never really happens. Well, that's going to be, that is a huge reason why, that, that is a, a, a huge reason why Luther continues to be allowed to go forward. It's this, this, this political maneuvering, the independence of the, of, of the electors, the independence of, of the nobility of Germany from the emperor, from the pope. And, and actually it's this, I think it, the same thing that we saw this episode, where the Pope comes to Germany, because the Pope can't really go to anybody else. You know, you have Spain, which has its own king now, and they're not really, they're, they're, they're pretty much free of the, they're more free of the Pope. Uh, France is more free of the Pope. It's difficult for the Pope to get the Spaniards or the French or the English to fight his battles for us, for him. And it's really the, his, his major, help in getting things physically done when it comes to going to war it's going to be the germans because they're fragmented but now <laughs> they're beginning to get more solidified because he keeps asking them and they say no well now they're and then then bring luther into this and that is further solidifies their position if you push the germans too hard then you never got them you, you can't get them and so if you push against Luther, you're pushing against the Germans. That becomes the story at play here. So the emperor is always trying to figure out how much can I push against Luther? How much can I push against Saxony and not push away all of Germany? Yeah. So that's that's all we've got that sort of sets the table. I think we're, we're pretty much ready. We've got Cajetan is sitting, waiting in Augsburg for Luther to show up. Frederick the Wise, the end of the diet, he goes back to, he leaves he leaves Augsburg, maybe goes to Wittenberg, one of his other castles. And Luther is sent to Augsburg for a discussion with Cajetan on the 95 Theses. And that's that sets the table, that sets everything up for our next episode. In our next episode, we'll look at the proceedings of the Diet of Augsburg from the perspective of the meeting of Luther and Cajetan. And I think that, that about does it. Cheers. Cheers. Now, do we have any clarifications that we need to make on previous episodes, or how are we doing there? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there is a couple of clarifications we should throw in there. Uh, back in the show on the background of the... I think that was 
Episode Ep- two. Episode one. two, I think it is. Seems like a long time ago right now, it, Mike. It does. But we were not perfect. Bartholomew Bernhardi, I had identified as the one that had debated the scholastic theses of uh, 1517. That was not true. He was a favorite of Luther's. But he defended a set of theses in 1516. And Which what, we didn't really talk about. We much. did not talk about. And actually, that, but that was important because that was when, when, when Bar- Bartholomew Bernardi presented that. It was, it was revolutionary. Because to, he talked about Augustine. Because he talked about Augustine. And so it was revolutionary in, in Wittenberg. And the, everybody was against him. And Luther and Bernardi basically said, hey, Look at Augustine. I'm just saying what Augustine said. And everybody else recognized that this was an attack on scholastic theology. They were looking at uh, Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle. And suddenly Luther's saying, we need to talk about another one of these early church fathers. And that's St. Augustine. Yeah. So, so it was, and it was through that work that Karlstadt... Now, who was Karlstadt? Andreas Karlstadt was a professor at the University of Wittenberg. He was the dean of uh, the university at the time, and he was a pretty important professor uh, for Luther. He was kind of the one that helped assign what lectures people gave and things like that, is what I think the role of Karlstadt is. Now, the role of Karlstadt in terms of the Reformation will be much more noteworthy as we talk about the time when Luther is taken away to the Warburg Castle. But he, he at this point, and yeah, we'll, we'll have to sidestep all that for now, but the the what happens at this point is Karlstadt is very important in the city of in the University of Wittenberg. He's yeah. the dean there. And he, he's also by the way the one that was supposed to be the debater at the Heidelberg disputation. But that Luther kept on listening to Karlstadt and he he stepped in, which Johann Eck loved because then he never really wanted to debate Karlstadt anyways. He wanted to debate Luther. That's Leipzig. Leipzig? Or is it Leipzig? I That's thought, Leipzig. Yeah, you're right. Leipzig. So, you know, in a couple episodes, I consistently mess up Heidelberg and Leipzig and you always correct me, <laughs> which is great for us to do during this moment of corrections. All right. So the 1517 thesis was actually Franz Gunther. And and what that one was, that was the attack on scholastic theology, the 97 theses against scholastic theology. So a couple of times, Luther's, Luther keeps storming the gates on scholastic theology, and it caused a real you know tempest there in Wittenberg. But through all that, he got the friendship and the support of Karlstadt in 1516, mm-hmm. and Karlstadt actually supported Luther, which was important going forward. And then in 1517, Luther again goes after the, uh, not with the 97 Theses. So we thank today Josh Yegley, our, our sound engineer. And thanks again, as always, to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan. A lot of St. Paul Lutheran churches out there. We're going to say the one in Hamburg. Uh, uh, for some all the resources support. we've used, Mike? Uh, well, Luther's Works, Volume 31, has been a big help to yeah. us on this one. And that's the uh, book that works on the career of the reformer of Martin Luther during this time period of 1517 and 1518. Oh. We also appreciate the Catholic Encyclopedia, found they, at newadvent.org. Uh, they do a great job. I, uh, although we don't always agree with them, they, they do have great resources there. And that's where we found some more information about Johann Tetzel. That's true. That's true. And then we had uh, the uh, Cambridge Modern History. That's actually an old book, but a lot of the stuff that I'm finding, 
something that's really good. You have to go back to early 1900s, 1800s. They they really did some deep digging back then. There's some good modern scholarship on Luther, but there was a stretch in the 20th century where a lot of Lutheran scholarship didn't look at the actual facts of history, but tried to figure out like a Freudian reading of Luther or a Marxist reading of Luther. And it kept on doing this kind of reading of Luther that wasn't as focused on the facts and tried to figure out yeah, we're more interested in actually what what actually happened. Which I'm, is why these early 19th, 20th century ones are better than the more recent ones. And then uh, also Wikipedia is always Wikipedia good. is they, great. They had a good article on, on Cajetan. I actually I, I referenced that and they were very helpful. So if you want to contact us, you can do it by email, graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can catch us on our website at, the, at graceontap-podcast.com. And throughout this episode, we've had an audience member. Henry, thanks for being here. Thanks, Henry. All right. Have a great day, folks. 